2: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day,
3: we bring you interviews from CEOs,
2: market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com podcast. Credit Suisse Group. I'm looking at the shares trading in Europe right now, down 16%. Percent uh, on the back of some news of a major restructuring, yet another major restructuring of this leading European uh, investment bank, uh, quasi-global investment bank, uh, Credit Suisse. They're also going to issue four billion uh, share sale, four billion dollars uh, to fund the revamp, and that's obviously weighing on the stock. Let's bring in Allison Williams. She's a senior global banks analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. So, Allison, give us kind of the, the layout here of this latest restructuring of Credit Suisse Group.
4: So let's start with the, the strategic changes, which I think they are doing the right thing. They are um, sort of carving out the part of their trading business that really does not align with the core wealth unit. Um, I think this is not a surprise. They're going to be selling that to Apollo and PIMCO, remaining some some residual assets, but that will free up some capital that they can allocate elsewhere. Um, and then the other interesting change is bringing back the first Boston name, so a little throwback Thursday Yay. for you. Um, and uh, they're going to, so that that's sort of an interesting point. They're going to carve out that part of the investment bank and make it a little bit of a more of a boutique with some outside money, which is interesting. But I my feeling is that the main thing that will accomplish is to provide a way to compensate the talent and retain that talent that is so important to that business, which, you know, Paul. Yep. And, um, and so, you know, this boutique structure has worked with all these spin outs that Green Hill sort of began that trend a long time ago. So we'll see, um, we'll see that. And I think that, um, the, the big surprise, so, so I think those were expected. They're going to focus on wealth, that's that's expected. Have some assets in a bad bank, That's that, those are all sort of expected things. The quarter was weak, generally as expected. The big surprise that drove the $4 billion loss was that they took a $3.7 billion um, deferred tax impairment as part of the um, overall look. And so that set their capital um, you know, back a little bit. Um, by 50 basis points, their, their capital ratio, um, which we know is is one of the important things that they need to work on going forward. The $4 billion um, capital raise that they uh, announced, um, you know, it's, I think the reason why the stock is weak today is, first of all, that, that deal has to price, so it's always going to be hard for a stock to um, do well uh, ahead of that. There are some technical issues. And then there are a lot of details missing. And so I think, um, you know, they're going to be – we don't know what the pricing is on the on the um, securitized product group sale that I just told you about. So we have no idea how much money they're going to get there. We want to know about that. Mm-hmm. What is all the profit that they're giving up with the things that they're selling? Um, they haven't, you know, given the full look of what that first bank- Boston uh, investment banking carve-out is going to look like. So there's, there's a lack of details on those things. We have the $4 billion capital raise coming. I would say the $4 billion was sort of a, a consensus. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that the restructuring charges um, also probably about in line with consensus.
5: Well, let's talk about the capital raise because they were trying to avoid this, right, uh, just given how low the shares are trading. I mean, was this kind of a last-ditch effort?
4: I mean, I think that they need capital. So the two alternatives, right, are a dilutive capital raising, which, as you said, um, no one wants to do, especially with um, the steep valuation, the stock at 0.3 times um, price to book. Uh, So that was something they would want to avoid. But I do think that, you know, given the situation that they're in and, and where we are today, the most important thing for them is to one, set the clear path forward, which I think they 've done and and be aggressive enough in terms of what that strategy is, and two raise enough capital so that they don 't have to come back um, so they do need to fund these steps going forward; they could either do it through asset sales or they could do it through the dilutive right. um, capital raising you know it's it's not neither were good neither were or are good choices because the valuations of things that they're selling are so low. Um, so, so either way, I think is a tough choice, but right. you know, the, but raising enough so that they don't have to come back. Because keep in mind that we think that markets are going to be uncertain he- from here. Restructuring never goes in a straight line. Um, you know, you're not going to want to have to have that overhang, which in a way, um, you know, just kind of becomes a vicious loop with the stock.
2: So, just real quickly, I got about uh, 45 seconds left. So, is the remaining Credit Suisse just? Basically, a European private wealth manager. Is that it?
4: I mean, if you step back and look at the change in their revenue mix in 2025, which is what they're projecting, trading is going to go from 25% to 15%. So it's still there. And, you know, the CSFB name, that's still going to be like 15% of revenue. So it's not totally turning away. They're taking a chunk of trading that really doesn't have to do with much of a business and sort sort of that. Ten percent of revenue will shift towards um, wealth, but it's it's the capital. You know, the capital and the returns because are what's important. Because even though the revenue is shrinking, the capital allocated to that um, was intense, and that sort of is lower returns. The stocks are valued based on what profitability you can give me or give the investor, and so I think that's. That's the shift. So some shift, but not totally going away.
2: All right. Good stuff, as always. And I I will note that Michael Klein, one of the top bankers on Wall Street and a board member of Credit Suisse, is going to become the CEO of this new CS First Boston. So I'm going to keep an eye on that boutique investment bank for sure. Allison Williams, senior global banks analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, giving us the breakdown of kind of yet another restructuring of one of uh, Switzerland's leading banks, one of Europe's leading banks. Well, we started off uh, this morning with uh, the ECB raising uh, their benchmark rate by 75 basis points. Uh, We also got a lot of economic data out today, uh, led by the GDP number came in a little bit better than expected, plus 2.6%. Remember, it was minus 0.6% last quarter. So kind of brings us back to the same discussion. What's the Federal Reserve going to do as it looks at all these uh, eco data points? Let's check in with Matt Stuckey. He's a senior portfolio manager at Northwestern. Mutual. Matt, you know, we obviously the ECB, what we heard from Madam Lagarde this morning, what we have been hearing from Federal Reserve officials, uh, leading uh, Fed Chairman Jay Powell, is the focus is on inflation. What is your inflation call at Northwestern Mutual? And then how does that kind of drive where you think this Federal Reserve will go from here?
7: Well, good morning. Um, you know, first and foremost, we are, are called Northwest Mutual is that inflation is set to roll over here as we enter into 2023. Uh, however, we do think that, um, you know, you're not really going to see in the official CPI numbers until we we turn over into to next year because of the lagged effects of, of housing. You know, housing enters into CPI, as we all know, with a 12 to 18 month lag. And so right now we're just dealing with, you know, uh the housing market that we had in in twenty twenty one and that's light years different than the current environment. So it's gonna take time for this this inflation uh number to to roll over, but you know, the end destination in our in our minds is very different than the sticky inflation argument that that's um still out there today.
5: And obviously, we're in the heart of earnings season, and when we think about what the Fed is trying to accomplish uh, in trying to get a grip on inflation, trying to bring demand down, when you are parsing through some of the earnings reports that we're getting, what do you think would be better from the Fed's perspective? Would it be better if companies were just trailing estimates, missing everything, or if companies were still beating by a mile right now, like they were, you know, maybe a year or two years ago?
7: Well, the Fed definitely wants to bring inflation lower, and and they want to do so without, uh, uh, without, you know, really putting a lot of people out of work. But, you know, I think at at a high level, profits and employment are are correlated. Uh, And so higher inflation weaker aggregate demand from consumers as a result of all of this um, monetary policy tightening is inevitably going to lead to to lower profits. Um, And so, you know, you look on the other side of this, you have to expect um, employment to, to suffer as we move into 2023 and we're starting to see that show up in the survey data, you know, just look at the conference board uh, information that we got last week, the labor differential, you know, starting to migrate back um, away from the strength that we saw, you know, the last 12 months and, you know, the spread between how, how, um, how people are asked are answering the question of are jobs easy versus uh, hard to get right now is starting to correlate towards an increase in the unemployment rate. And so I think that's what the Fed wants to see. They want to see um, some labor market slack reenter into into the economy. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll likely see that um, in the coming quarters.
2: So, Matt, we've had uh, almost half of the S&P 500 companies uh, report earnings. Um, you know, so we had some tech disappointment, but some other parts of uh, the market showing some decent numbers relative to expectations. Do you have any takeaways here at this point?
7: Yeah, um, you know I, I think a broad takeaway is that certain parts of the economy, you know, this is going to feel like a pretty severe recession. and in other parts of the economy, this is going to be almost as if you know we don't really feel much of a recession at all. We're still rebalancing consumer spending back towards a historical mix of, of services to goods. Um, you know, we were in a very, very strong good spending environment, a stay-at-home um, um, uh, uh, spending profile that really promoted good spending. I mean, good spending jumped 30 some percentage points yep. uh, year on year, and you know we're normalizing down down to historical averages. And so, for those companies that operate in that area, it's going to feel pretty pretty painful. Uh, on the other hand, on the services side, you know, demand still remains pretty good, and you know, we, w- we would expect that to be uh, pretty resilient. And if you look back through historical recessions, and we, we do think that we're going to have some sort of a-, a version of a mild recession, services demand tends to hang in there pretty well. It's, it's the good side of things that you know, really takes the brunt of-, brunt of the weakness.
5: And so, Matt, when you survey the cross-asset landscape right now, where do you see the most opportunity?
7: Yeah, for the for the last couple of years, we've been tilting our our clients' portfolios towards cheaper parts of the market, areas that uh, can absorb um, some weakness in terms of earnings revisions to the to the downside, um, and we see no reason to change that view. Um, you know, I, I think if you just look at a sector neutral kind of value tilt in the large cap space, you're only paying eight and a half, nine times forward earnings uh, for a portfolio that's constructed in that manner. And so that's a lot of cushion against um, an environment that we see of of falling earnings expectations as the lagged effects of tightening monetary policy, higher inflation start to impact aggregate demand. Uh, And so that's how we've positioned our portfolios the last couple of years. And we, we just don't see a reason to change at this point.
3: All
2: right, Matt, good stuff. Really appreciate getting your time. Matt Stuckey, he's a senior portfolio manager at Northwestern Mutual uh, based in Milwaukee. And I've said it once, I'll say it again, there are some smart money managers in Milwaukee. You wouldn't think of it. I but wouldn't. But it is a go-to stop for an intrepid sell-side analyst uh, looking for some II votes. Um, so I spent a lot of time in Milwaukee back in the day. This could be the interesting discussion, most interesting discussion of the morning. Uh, Asatash Paddy, managing partner, he runs North America for McKinsey, which I think is some little consulting firm I've or heard something. I've it, yeah. yeah. so anywho. Uh, Asatash is in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Asatash, thanks so much for joining us here. Um, you've got a new book out. We'll, we'll get to your practice and what McKinsey's doing and all that kind of stuff. The Titanium Economy. I've not heard that term before. What is the Titanium Economy?
8: Uh, Paul, it's great to be here. Uh, the titanium uh, economy is all around us. It actually constitutes uh, a portion of the manufacturing. We call this industrial technology. These companies are durable, they're resistant. You don't actually see them, which is why we coined the phrase the titanium economy. And uh, these, these companies, are 6,000 of them, they've been around for the last uh, 50 to 100 years. Yet they often don't get talked about. These are not the companies with the business-to-consumer brands, they don't buy the Super Bowl ads, They often, the CEOs often don't make it uh, to the front page of a newspaper. Yet when we spend time, what we found is that these companies, 90% of these companies are profitable. Uh, they've been around for decades. Only 20% are actually public mm-hmm. and the vast majority are private. And you know, the, the thing that struck us was this not just our past, this could be the future of the American economy and hence, hence the reason we put a focus on it.
5: So, name some names here. What is the quintessential titanium economy company?
8: So, Katie, we could have written this as saying there are these are the 50 companies you didn't know about in 150 places you never visited. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, let me take a couple of examples. Uh, one is an example of a company called Brady Corporation. Excuse me. <clears throat> They're based in Milwaukee. Uh, this See, is a we, were Again.
5: we were just Milwaukee, talking about Milwaukee, Milwaukee. swear to
8: And uh, they've been around since 1914, and they initially came up with technology that was used during the military during World War II, so when you were in extreme temperatures and you needed to separate electrical wires to provide safety. Today, that same company is around, and what they do is they provide technology that is used for identification of babies, the baby bracelets in hospitals, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> That's one example of a company. Another example of a company, if I go down south, is Corvo, uh, which is based in Raleigh. Uh, when we are able to text and speak on our phones at the same time, it's because of the company called Corvo, and they make the components that actually use a, that allow us to be able to text and speak on the phone at the same time. Hmm. Right, so these are just two examples of like things that we have come across in our day-to-day lives. And that's why we said these companies are all around us. I mean, we use the products uh, on a continuous basis every single day, yet we never actually see them.
2: Why aren't more of these companies, you know, public? Why, where did, how do they capitalize on themselves if they don't go to the public markets?
8: So many of these, uh, Paul, I get that question a lot. Many of these companies have been around for decades. Okay. Uh, These are companies that operate, they have a degree of specialization, we call these micro verticals. So these 6,000 companies, they operate in roughly 90 or so different micro verticals. They have come up with a playbook that actually allows them to be able to drive a consistent level of revenue growth and a consistent level of uh, strong economic performance. We look at return on invested capital and they have solid return on invested capital and they've been doing that for decades. These companies have been in the mode of consistent steady operating performance and as a result often the change in ownership is driven by is driven much more by uh, an, uh, by a, by the transition of a founder etc right the strange thing that we found back to capitalists they only get less than one percent of today's venture capital funding actually goes into the titanium economy and since we published this book interestingly we've had reach outs from a couple of venture capitalists who are actually interested in finding out more
5: no kidding yeah. I like this conversation because it feels somewhat more hopeful than the conversations we typically have around U.S. manufacturing, for example, and the decline of that industry. But to your point, this is thriving. It's just undercovered, under talked about.
8: That's exactly right. And this is, you know, the the thing that struck us was jobs in the titanium economy companies Um, You know, typically are about 60,000, north of 60,000 dollars a year, which is 2x what it is in the services sector, right? And often the the thing that we also found is that these companies don't actually have uh, any difficulty in retaining talent, but they have a real challenge in attracting talent Mm. because no one actually knows about them. So last year when we looked across the economy, there was not of a million jobs that went unfulfilled, which from the standpoint, if you quantify the economic impact of that from the standpoint of the GDP of the, of the United States, that's actually massive. So as head of McKinsey North
2: America, you and your consulting teams, you talked to pretty much everybody here. And at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, when the supply chain really seized up a lot of companies, a lot of industries, a lot of politicians said, we need to reshore some of this stuff, like semiconductor manufacturing. When you talk to your clients, is that really going to happen, or was that just rhetoric at the beginning of the pandemic, do you think? Because face it, I mean, you know as well as anybody, this is a global economy, and what's happened over the last three or four generations, is that going to be reversed at all?
8: So, Paul... uh if if I go back, the thing that the pandemic did is, I think, historically, companies had been focused on purely efficiency, which is the lowest cost. The thing the pandemic did was it introduced a new term called resilience. And resilience means many different things, but you can actually quantify and say if you have a shock in the in the supply chain, a shock could be because of logistics. It could be because of you know a tier two or tier three suppliers that you know that, that that it actually has a big financial impact on the business and we quantified that through the McKinsey Global Institute, and we said for uh, many different companies it could be up to 30 to 50 percent of annual earnings over a five to 10 year period. The interesting thing was they had been facing that level of impact over the past 10 years, except COVID put a microscope and a focus on it. Yep. So as we look at it now. Every company is therefore starting to rethink and say, what does supply chain resilience actually mean for them? And it might imply very different answers for very different institutions. But the question is very much on the table with CEOs and with boards. Hmm.
5: And we only have about a minute left with you, but I am curious, what inspired you to write this book? What led you to sitting down and saying, I got to write a book about this?
8: So I started with McKinsey 27 years ago. And then um, when when I came to the United States for the first time, I spent portion of my life in Cleveland where I was Mm -hmm. serving industrial companies. Then I went to the Silicon Valley where I was serving technology (laughs) companies. I noticed that both were driving innovation, but yet, when we talk about innovation, we only talk about innovation on the tech, on the West Coast, and we miss this other critical aspect of the the innovation, which should really be a bedrock of the American economy.
2: Absolutely, some good stuff. Uh, Really fascinating, Asutosh Padi, managing partner for McKinsey of North America. Uh, There's some pretty smart people, you know, I've come in contact with a lot of McKinsey folks. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in Milwaukee, apparently. Apparently, they they (laughs) charge a lot. It ain't free Uh what these guys give you in terms of advice. Uh, Asitaj, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Uh, His book is The Titanium Economy. Sounds pretty interesting out there.
3: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork.
2: And NASDAQ uh, down 7 tenths uh, tenths of 1% on some of those weak tech earnings. um, And it hasn't been across the board, but there's been a lot of headwinds that have become really apparent for investors in this technology space, painfully apparent, uh, and one of them is digital advertising. But let's bring on and roundtable this thing a little bit. We'll bring on uh, Mandeep Singh. Uh, He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Anurag Rana, uh, he's on the phone. They are both senior technology analysts for Bloomberg Intelligence. They cover the entire tech space. They've been doing it for uh, decades and we need to break it down. Uh, Mandeep, let's start with you and Facebook. Um, This is my takeaway from the Facebook call which I did listen to last night. We have slowing revenue growth for a variety of reasons. We're gonna continue to ramp up our spending on a business meta that none of you really understand or support. That's a tough message for a stock. And I'm like, how can that stock work with that type of message? And the stock's down 25% today. What's your takeaway Here about the Facebook story going forward.
9: Yeah, look, I I think the print wasn't bad. So if you look at the impressions growth, 17% growth, given, you know, all the product changes they're making to compete with TikTok, it was in line, in fact, better than expectations. The problem was the guide. And that too, they seem to have reined in the expenses for this year. In fact, they started off the year with 95 billion OPEX guide. They brought it down to 85 to 87 but for next year they are saying it'll be 96 to 101 billion when uh, the top line has slowing to 2% growth so and then on the ca- capex side they kept talking about how they need to invest more in data centers to catch up uh, to tiktok so it wasn't a good message in terms of just you know cost discipline that a company like facebook needs to show at this kind
2: and you made a great point to me just a, a minute ago how can they kind of get away with doing this? And the answer is the super voting rights that Mr. Boom.
9: Zuckerberg has. And look, uh, for a company of this size, which was almost a trillion dollars in market cap, and now it's down 70 percent, uh, lost 70 percent of its value, it's just, uh, it feels irresponsible. And to an extent, uh, they brought it down to themselves, you know, in terms of yep. doing it in this fashion.
5: All right, it's not a bad guy to be, Mark Zuckerberg, have all-encompassing well, he power. Yeah. But He's lost on, a
2: couple shekels today. Yeah,
5: that's true. That's true. He still has more than me. But in any <laughs> case, Anurag... Wrap this into what we're expecting this afternoon. We have Apple, we have Amazon, obviously very different uh, businesses from the likes of Meta. But I mean, if we think about all of the uh, numbers that we got from Microsoft, Alphabet, the mood music is pretty grim at this point. Uh, Are Apple and Amazon going to move the needle at all?
10: It is going to be very interesting. And I think uh, one would say logically, both of them should show some weakness, you know, from the Apple side of it. it, uh, we should see you know good demand in the. US offset by weaker demand in Europe and China um, and for Amazon you know we are expecting the the cloud business will slow down as well very similar to uh, uh, you know what we saw in Microsoft not so much in this quarter but their guidance for next quarter which should uh, temper some expectations but the big question in both cases will be how much of that is already priced in the stock uh, decline over the past, uh, several months. I think it's going to be a very interesting earnings tonight. So,
2: I guess, Anurag, I just on the Apple story here, what do you think their message really needs to be here? Um, is it still a focus on new and cool products or, hey folks, take your take your focus away from that and focus on the services business? What do you think their, the message they need to get across tonight is?
10: I think the message is going to be focused on the complete ecosystem not so much hone in just on the iphone numbers all the time but look at what they have done in terms of you know the clients adopting far more products everything from macs to airpods and then the services business where they are investing aggressively because you know frankly speaking services business does something more than just add revenue it adds a really high margin profit to uh, uh, apple's bottom line Services business have gross margins of about 70% compared to products, which is only in the 40s. So as they grow up the services business, I think it is going to be beneficial to Apple in the long run.
5: Can I uh, inject some anecdota in here? My husband bought an iPhone for the first time this week, which really? is fascinating. He's, Where's he been? He's always been an Android user, but he bought his very first iPhone. I told one of our family friends that uh, her husband also Bought his first iPhone in the past few months. So I, didn't I don't think know there are any on. new users out there. There's but there are. Okay. still the total addressable market uh, has <laughs> not been completely tapped yet. But uh, Mandeep, I wanna go back to Meta because you were saying it wasn't that bad, maybe. Uh, you look at the share price today, twenty three percent down in meta shares. Is this an overreaction?
9: It certainly is. And from a valuation perspective, look, if they walk back their comments or the guidance around, you know, the OPEX and CAPEX they gave for 2023, that would add about, you know, $10 billion in free cash flow that the company could generate more. And that certainly would drive a re-rating of the stock. But the question is, how quickly do they do it? And, you know, again, it comes back to voting rights. Right now, it's just one person who's making all the decisions there.
2: Is the Bloom Off the Rose... For the digital advertising play writ large do i jump off the bandwagon
9: no i i think uh, look digital ad has always been a cycl- uh, cyclical market and uh, that's not changing yes uh, it's going to grow you know uh, about two times gdp and uh, if the gdp is slowing down that's going to impact uh, you know inflation is somewhat uh, a headwind for all the digital ad vendors and we will come out of this i mean i have no doubt that search and youtube Will grow, you know, much faster than what they are growing now. Question for Meta is: Can they keep the engagement? Because once you lose your critical users, and and they seem to have migrated to apps like Snapchat, Roblox. I mean, the young demographic, TikTok. I think that is the one that is worrying me the most, and that's why Meta is making this huge pivot.
2: And real quick, uh, Anurag, is the tech spend call macro call is that still in place?
10: Yes. I mean, one of the things, if you see Paul, if you look at the results from ServiceNow, they were pretty spectacular. They were unbelievably strong. So if you look at it, most software names are up today. So from our side, you know, we still think software is the place to be in terms of, you know, spending for enterprises because it generates the hardest ROI. The other areas such as hardwares are the one that is getting impacted the most.
2: All right, good stuff, you guys. Really appreciate you putting into perspective. We got some more names after the close, Apple, Amazon, but so far it's been a little bit underwhelming from the world of big tech, uh, but we love getting some perspective. Anurag Rana, Senior Software Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, and Mandeep Singh, Senior Tech Analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence joining us. Just to give us kind of some perspective here, there's a lot of names here, like Meta, uh, that's really, really taking it on the chin off, 23% here. The market trying to digest a lot of earnings here, uh, we had the ECB raising rates as well earlier this morning. Question then will be, um, you know, what will the Federal Reserve do next week? And I think we're probably going to cover that, don't you think, Katie? Uh,
5: yeah, it's, you know, a topic of conversation. We'll have some we Bloomberg
2: All right. Let's talk about these markets here we can do with uh, good friend uh, Katerina Simonetti, Senior Vice President at Morgan Stanley Private Wealth Management. Uh, Katarina, there's a lot of talk in the marketplace about whether this market is setting in a bottom. And I don't even know how to measure it, determine it, you know, how do you think about it? Are you getting phone calls like that from your clients? Like, Hey, Katarina, is this the bottom? Do we need need to be putting fresh capital to work here?
11: Well, Paul and Katie, thank you for uh, having me on. And uh, absolutely, you know, this is exactly the type of uh, types of calls that we're getting because, you know, investors are seeing that they, if we haven't hit the bottom in the bear market yet, then maybe the end is near. And the question is, you know, the, the, Should we increase our equity exposure? And it's naturally to be wondering this, you know, are we done? And it's a really hard call because in our view, even though the rallies like this are, you know, much needed, they provide this relief that we're so craving for and we want to be optimistic and we have to look into the long run, you know, we think that the market already priced in the Fed action, but we still have earnings revisions on the table. And until we're done with those, which might take a quarter or even two, the volatility is going to remain high. So average into the market is definitely the way to go here. In the long run, it is absolutely important to be invested and stay the course. And very soon we're going to be ready to recommend more aggressive plays like mm-hmm. cyclical exposure, like consumer discretionary services, manufacturing. But for For now, our call remains stay put, stay defensive, stay the course. You know, stick with healthcare, energy, consumer staples. You know, there are preferred defensive sectors because they offer you know attractive yields and price stability, operational efficiency, things that we need to hold on to in order to you know to sustain integrity of the portfolio within this volatility.
5: And Katarina, from your chair, what is the bigger factor in your thinking right now when you're putting together a portfolio? Is it Earnings or is it the Fed? And I realize the two obviously bleed into each other.
11: Katie, I think that we we had a lot of talk about the Fed and in our view, you know, we kinda know what to expect. You know, Fed is going to be rising rates until it's time to pivot. Eventually, they're going to pivot. The end is in sight. You know, so I think that then we're looking at the Fed action. There's not much, you know, to be surprised about. But earnings revisions are on the table. And the rates have been priced in, but the earnings risk still remains high. And in our view, that's what is going to bring another leg down. Well, we really want to be optimistic and we should hold on to this optimism because in the long run, this is exactly what we need. This bear market, in our view, is not over. And we need to see this earning revision cycle completed. That will be the pivoting, pivoting point for the economy to move into the next bull market. And it is absolutely coming. We're probably 90% in into this bear market. You know, we're kind of looking that perhaps... Towards the second half of the next year, Fed might start cutting rates, and we will see the acceleration of the global economy. But we're not there yet. Before we get there, we need to get through this final stage of the bear market. That might be difficult for investors. So psychologically, we need to prepare ourselves to stay the course, stay defensive, stay put, but also trade into the volatility and position portfolios for the recovery that is definitely coming.
2: (coughs) Katarina, how about the – I look at the two-year treasury – Boy, it's 4.3% right now. I can actually get some return on my cash. Are you do you have clients calling you up saying, "Hey, can I buy a CD or something like that?"
11: Well, Paul, that's a nice change from the beginning of the year. You know, the the difficult part about, you know, starting this this year was the fact that bonds were down and stocks were down at the same time. There was Basically, no place to hide. And right now, we're seeing that, you know, finally, we can get attractive yields in Treasuries, you know, CDs, even money market rates are coming up. But where we see the rates being the most attractive are short-term, high-quality corporate bonds. You know, really, you know, there, there are options for investors finally, you know, so for The individuals who are not looking to increase their equity exposure that are concerned, they don't necessarily want to be in the market right now because they're worried about all the risks that we're still facing, you know, that are attractive yields that, you know, we're finally can get, you know, on the fixed income side.
5: And Katarina, I want to go back to the idea of a Fed pivot because markets have been trying to time this trade for about six months now. Uh, It hasn't worked yet, but we talk about uh, economic data often in trying to suss out whether we're starting to see the real economic impacts of tightening financial conditions. But when you look at the earnings releases that we've gotten over the past couple of weeks, are you starting to see evidence that uh, conditions are tighter in some of those numbers?
11: Well, uh, you know, we certainly wouldn't want to be in the seat of the Federal Reserve right now because they're trying to achieve the soft landing. But, you know, there is a delay to their action. And we don't really know how the economy is going to respond. You know, in our deep hope is that, you know, even if we get the recession, it's going to be a mild recession and not a severe one. And hopefully we will be able to avoid it altogether. You know, but that's the challenging part for the Fed is, you know, they want to tighten and they want to get inflation under control, which still, by the way, is remaining high. And there is a chance that inflation might Stay at the higher levels levels in comparison to what we have seen historically, you know, and that might be our new normal. But that's the challenge. That's the balancing act that that Fed is facing right now is, you know, they need to tighten. They need to, you know, to address the inflation. The dollar is high. And, of course, for a good reason, you know, with oil prices being high, with U.S., you know, seemingly doing better than the rest of the world, you know, but they don't want to overshoot. They don't want to tighten so much that, you know, it will bring the economy into recession.
2: Hey, Katerina, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, always appreciate getting your perspective. Katerina Simonetti, she's a Senior Vice President, Private Wealth Advisor at a little firm called Morgan Stanley. Um, and Katie, I think one of the key takeaways from Katerina's comments was she felt like maybe we were 90% of the way through this bear market Mm -hmm. there's light at the end of the tunnel that type of argument i'm not sure if that number is accurate but i feel like that's kind of a building consensus here that we're closer to the end than the beginning of the the bear market
5: i think that just the price action over the past few days supports that when you think about the fact that the s p 500 still fighting to stay green even though big tech as we've mentioned over and over again uh been a bit of a disappointment to put it mildly
2: All right, we had lots and lots of earnings last night. Today, we're going to have some more earnings after the close, led by Apple and Amazon. One of the names that really jumped out at me, because uh, I love industrial America, is Caterpillar Cat. Uh, stock's up 8.2%. They had some good numbers, and I want to break it down and get a closer look. And we can do that with Chris Ciolino. He covers all the industrial uh, companies for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's based in Bloomberg Intelligence's Princeton office. Chris, um, they're selling some tractors. They're selling some backhoes. Tell us about the quarter.
6: They sure are. Um, It was a really strong print with an across-the-board beat. Um, The volumes were good, but I think pricing continues to be the real standout uh, here, up 14% in the quarter. Uh, And that momentum should really be be sustained into 4Q. And, you know, despite all the the headlines we see around the economy slowing, demand continues to be healthy across most of Cat's end markets. Orders maintain their double-digit growth trajectory. So that should really support a a really favorable backdrop for them moving into next year.
5: Absolutely. I mean, that's why this report caught my attention. I thought that uh, with all the inflation we keep talking about, this was going to be another gloom and doom report when you think about Caterpillar's reputation as this bellwether for the economy. But Chris, in your view, I mean, how much was this actual strength in the numbers versus expectations maybe being too low?
6: Um, It's probably a little bit of both. You know, I I think part of the story around CAT has been somewhat, you know, lackluster margins, especially in their kind of core businesses coming out of this uh, post-COVID recovery. So it was very encouraging to see uh, an across-the-board beat across all units um, this quarter, which is the first time. We've seen this in a long time. Um, And and really, it it was a combination of both very strong pricing and volumes. Um, I I think the supply chain easing up a little bit has uh, helped them get more equipment out of the factory.
2: Chris, I'm just looking at the PGEO function on the Bloomberg Terminal for for CAT, and I see that at 62% of the revenue is outside of the U.S., 38% inside the U.S. Did they call out any regions of the world that are particularly strong or weak? I mean, we kind of think about Europe as in a really tough spot, uh, exacerbated by by the war in Ukraine.
6: Yeah, if you think about uh, going across, uh, around the globe here, um, you know, revenues were up in all regions. You know, we did see some deceleration or some softness um, in Europe and Asia. Asia, it's really a function of China, um, which is not surprising. If you take out China, Asia was actually up. Um, And and a a little bit of softness in Europe, but you know what? There's still a lot of infrastructure investments over there, so that has held up demand reasonably well in this environment. North America continues to be uh, unbelievably strong. Um, even though we, we're starting to see, obviously, some weakness on the residential construction side, but non-residential continues to be
2: uh, a real standout. Yeah, this, this demand and the pricing side of this business, let's just focus on the Americas. Chris, who's like a, a typical customer of Caterpillar? Yeah, so
6: all their equipment goes through dealers, and then through the dealer channel, it goes out to, uh, you know, it could be infrastructure investments, large industrial po- projects, uh, petrochemicals. I mean, it, it really spans the, the gamut of the non-residential construction sector. Um, that's roughly, you know, three-quarters of their construction business. Uh, and then, obviously, they have, uh, you know, a, a mining equipment business, which, you know, continues to make steady progress. This is here industrial
2: and, America, isn't it, Chris? Mm-hmm.
6: <laughs> And then don't forget, I mean, the, the energy and transportation yep. business, you know, with these higher oil and commodity prices, um, that's certainly a tailwind there as well.
5: This isn't the titanium economy. No, this, this is, is the industrial real, yeah, economy. But, Chris, if we continue on this metaphor of, you know, Caterpillar being this economic bellwether, when you look through this report, are we past peak supply chain worry?
6: I think we're getting there. Um, you know, This was the first quarter that Cat had actually called out some pockets of improvement in the supply chain. And really, up to this point, they had been reluctant to do that. We had heard that from a, a number of other companies. Um, Cat tends to be, I, I think, a little bit more conservative from this standpoint. So for them to start citing some pockets of improvement, I, I think we're probably past the peak. Yep. Um, but You know, things are are quite fluid. Um, There's still, you know, numerous supply issues around chips and uh, engine components. But um, to see the volumes jump here, um, I I think that's a sign that we're we're probably past the peak.
2: All right, Chris, great stuff. We appreciate you hopping on, breaking down. Caterpillar uh, stock up a little over 8%, so some good numbers out of Deerfield, Illinois. And that screams middle America. Great stuff there. Chris Chilino covers industrial companies for Bloomberg Intelligence.